Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to start to look at Bach's justly famous Brandenburg Concertos. The circumstances relating to the composition of these concertos are just a little mysterious. It's widely assumed that they were composed while Bach was employed at the court of Kirtan and were presented to the Markgrave of Brandenburg in an attempt to curry favor there. We know that Bach was happy enough at Kirtan, at least in the earlier years, but Bach was also ambitious and from time to time seemed to seek out recognition from others and, who knows, maybe an even more attractive position might have become available if the Margrave found his works to be suitable. On the other hand, Christoph Wolff, always a good source for interpretations of Bach's activities, suggests an earlier composing date for versions of at least some of the concertos, remarking on the potential awkwardness of using compositions written under contract, so to speak, to the Prince of Curtin to try to impress a possible future employer. And since there's no record that the Margrave ever had the works performed, Bach's offering seems not to have had much effect at any rate. No matter, Bach himself was well aware of how attractive these concertos were and used a number of the movements from them, often modified, in other contexts, for example, as the opening instrumental movement for a cantata. Regardless of the full circumstances for which these works were composed, it's clear that they are remarkable concertos. Each of the six presents not only a different group of instruments, but also a different relationship between the concertino or solo group and the piano or full orchestra. We're going to take a look first at numbers three and six, which are closest to the older concerto grossa form that Bach inherited from Italian composers such as Corelli and Vivaldi. I say closest because there are a few extended individual solos from the solo instruments, and in fact, there doesn't seem to be a consistent use of solo instruments in the more traditional sense at all. The solo tutti contrast is gained primarily from juxtaposing the whole orchestra, the piano section, and various smaller groups of instruments. Furthermore, the divisions between these sections, the tutti or piano sections versus the concertino or solo sections, are not at all as predictable and clear-cut as in some earlier Italian concerti grossi. We saw some of this unpredictability in Bach's violin concertos in episode 5, but it's even more in evidence for this group. For Bach's concerto number 3 in G major, even the array of instruments is unusual. It's not that Bach employs anything exotic or out of the ordinary here. He uses the standard string section with continuo after all, but he groups them in unusual ways. First of all, there are three separate and independent violin parts rather than the standard two. Then there are three separate viola parts, whereas a single part is much more common. Finally, there are three separate cello parts, as opposed to the single part normally providing the continual bass line, most likely doubled by violone or double basses. So Bach uses the three groups, sometimes referred to as choirs of strings, in imaginative and, at least in the measure-by-measure -measure sense, unpredictable ways. We begin the first movement with a theme that is as infectious as it is simple, largely boiling down to a single three-note motive. Originally expressed as two pickup notes on the weak part of the beat, the main note, and initially the tonic note of G, and a lower neighbor followed by an accidental return to the main note. That's it. We'll refer to this as motive 1A, and here's an example of it. We hear motive 1A, that three-note combination, five times in a row on different pitch levels, outlining the tonic chord, 
before Bach decides to break things up with a new figure, consisting of mostly 16th notes, which refers back to the same motive while working upward in a typically violinistic figuration pattern. We'll call this Motive 1B, and here's an example of it. Notice the strong, even forceful directional quality of these lines, which lends as much to the sense of energy that they project as the infectious repeated short, short, long rhythms that Bach scholar Albert Schweitzer has referred to as Bach's joy motive. From this point on, both motives 1A and 1B play a role as strong ascending and descending lines alternate until a final descent takes us to a cadence on G, and we see our first glimpse of solo activity, or the concertino section. The violin group, the three violins on top of the texture that I referred to earlier, lead the way, not surprisingly, by first isolating motive 1A, an octave higher than it originally appeared. Then the violins drop out briefly as the violists finish off the motive. But this time there's no sign of what we call motive 1B, but instead a new motive is introduced in the three violins, which we'll call motive 2. It's less distinctive, relying more on conventional streams of 16th notes, while other motives occur in counterpoint with it. Here's an example, slow down as usual for clarity. If that was a miniature solo section, what follows seems at first glance to be a mini-ritronello section in the new key of D major, very temporarily the new key. We're headed back to G major before you know it. And then Bach does a very Bachian thing. He brings back the first bar of motive 1A and divides it into half, the first part harmonized by all three violins and the second half treated similarly by the three violas. But motive 1B never appears. Instead, we go right to motive 2 with the violins and violas switching roles. From this point on, the texture thickens and thins and alternates between loud and soft with breathless speed, with many solo sections yielding quickly to equally brief and usually varied piano sections, quoting parts of the opening Ritonello theme. We modulate as we go, of course, and eventually the three choirs, the violin group, the viola group, and the cello group, all engage in a fairly conventional solo figuration with passages of 16th notes that from time to time make use of motive two. I'm going to play an example of one of those solo episodes, this one featuring the first violin. In this example, all the lower voices are repeating the tonic G, and the first violin is engaging in what initially seems like pretty conventional solo figuration patterns. This passage is linked to earlier motives, to be sure, but it still manages to eventually project a unique personality because of its plunging arpeggios. It's fairly rare for this concerto that a single instrument would be featured like this, rather than, for example, the whole choir of violins. But the second and third violins are by no means passive during this display. They do not for one minute let us forget about motive 1A, quoting it again and again in its pristine form, while the first violin frolics above it. There are other authentically soloistic passages as we continue through the movement, so it's not just the first violin who is so favored. Later on in the movement, there is a stunning chromatic modulation to E minor, in which a similar pattern is repeated, but this time outlining what starts as a D-sharp diminished chord but ends up as a dominant seventh in E minor. 
and this time it is the second violin which engages in solo flourishes comparable to what we just heard from the first violin. So, even though the instruments mostly operate within their choirs or groups, there is at least a little soloistic display from the individual instruments. In fact, even the third violin later on has its own brief moment in the sun. By the way, the individual violas and cellos do not get quite the same favorite status. The individual violas will flash out independently now and then, but the three cellos, even though assigned some tricky passage work from time to time, tend to operate as a unit. Before the movement comes to an end, there are more false or incomplete recapitulations of the Ritronello theme in various keys, and finally a real return only 11 bars before the end of the movement. We'll hear the opening of the movement. As we move on to the second movement, we immediately see that it could present some problems for performer and conductor. At first glance, it's a little puzzling. One measure long, marked adagio with two chords, both with fermatas or holds. The first, an inverted A minor chord, and the second, a dominant chord on B, both chords presumably leading to a tonic chord on E minor. Brief adagio movements are not terribly rare in Baroque concertos. Some of Albanoni's are little more than six or seven bars long and consist of a simple series of slow-moving chords. And, having the slow movement in the relative minor key, that would be considered pretty normal. But still, this is a different sort of situation. After all, there are only two chords here and no indication at all of any melodic activity. So, what do performers do? It seems very likely that this is a setup for an improvised flourish, something perhaps like a cadenzum from maybe a solo violin or the harpsichordist playing the continual part. Such a cadenza or improvised flourish may well have been provided by Bach himself when he supervised the performance of this work. But many modern performers are hesitant to engage in the sort of improvised passage the work seems to call for. There are exceptions, of course. Singers of the Baroque repertoire almost have to be ready to improvise in the expected embellishments when a da capo aria repeats the A section. And organists, even contemporary organists, are sometimes very fluent at improvising. Nevertheless, some conductors are so cautious about this sort of thing that they play the two unadorned chords, pause, and then go on to the third movement. Or, a much worse solution, throw in a completely unrelated movement by Bach simply because it's in E minor. In our performance by Musica Amphion, conducted from the harpsichord by Pieter Jan Belder, we have a reasonable middle ground. The movement is left quite short, but a solo violin plays a modest little cadenza-like passage over the chords. There's no mystery about the third movement. It's in G major, 12-8 time, and marked allegro, and given the nature of the primary melodic material, that means it's usually taken at a very fast clip. 
The movement is in binary form, two distinctive sections, each repeated with the first ending in a cadence on the dominant, assuming a major key here, and the second often being longer than the first, starting on dominant, touching on other keys, and eventually working its way back to the original tonic. This formal type was quite common in the Baroque era, found in innumerable dance suite movements for keyboards and various instrumental ensembles. The initial theme is once again a simple and straightforward one. In a rapidly flowing series of 16th notes, the first motive, which occupies the first beat of the 12-8 measure, is played by the first violin. It starts on a tonic G, dips down quickly to its lower neighbor, and then charges up the scale. The second motive, on B2 of the first measure, begins on D. It's ornamented quickly by its upper neighbor, and then quickly retreats down the scale. The first violin is imitated almost immediately by the second, and shortly thereafter by the third violin, doubled by all three violas. In the second half of the second bar, all three cellos, along with the continual bass line, jump in with the theme an octave lower. After handing the motive off to the other violins, violin one goes on to provide a counterpoint to it, which features, among other things, several repeated notes on D, the fifth of the scale. But there's so much going on with all the imitative voices entering so closely one after the other that it's pretty easy to lose contact with anything else. My example is, as usual, slowed down and simplified, reduced primarily to the theme and its imitations. The harmonic support for the theme and its imitation is a simple alternation of tonic and dominant chords, and that relatively static formula isn't going to prevail very long in an instrumental piece by Bach, a composer for whom the establishment of harmonic momentum was very important. So, we move on quickly, everything seems to happen quickly in this movement, to set up the groundwork for a modulation to a new key. And of course, when the harmonic context shifts, then it's likely that the motives involved will be affected by it, and in this case that means that the two key motives described earlier are going to take on slightly different forms as they wind their way through the harmonic changes on the way to D major. Shortly after we get to the new key, and the opening theme is presented again by the three cellos, we finally get a little break in the pattern. The opening theme is temporarily abandoned in favor of an arpeggio pattern taken up by the first violin, and then in harmony by the second and third violins. It's the kind of pattern that we've seen before, repetitive, but with a very clearly directional line emerging from it. These are the main ideas of the relatively short first section of the movement, which ends securely in D major, as one might expect. The second section, considerably longer, begins in much the same manner as the first, although the instrumentation is arranged differently. The three cellos, along with the continual bass line, begin with mode of one and immediately start to spin it out sequentially. The violas take over the idea as Bach already begins to move away from D major toward E minor. When it comes to the violin group's turn, they have something a little different in mind, a new figure that combines scale-wise movement with arpeggios and, typically for Bach, contains within it a strong implied descending line. Of course, up to tempo it goes by in the blink of an eye, just like every other motive in the movement, it is really noticeable only when it recurs, if then, and this one does recur a bit later, near the end of the section, although it's in a different context, popping back in after a reappearance of the other arpeggio-based motive that I referred to earlier in example two. 
It's really the grand sweep of the movement that impresses here, rather than the individual motivic details, or at least those motivic details that do not directly emerge from the opening motive, heard in my example one. Because the second half of the movement is basically a continuing swirl around that opening motive in different keys, often trailed by bits of invitation, modulations actually make a bigger impact on the listener. There is a particularly fascinating one to C major some 19 bars into the section, all the more notable, perhaps, because the initial scale-wise motive has dropped out in favor of the first arpeggio-based figure, and the harmonic underpinnings are therefore more obvious. The entire first theme, by which I, I mean really the whole first measure, not just the scale figure heard in the first two beats, comes back while we're still in C major, featuring the viola group, but it's really just a sleight of hand or ear, after all. The cellos and continual bass line pretty much continue on as if nothing important is happening higher up in the texture. At any rate, the real return comes back, as we would expect it to, in G major, somewhat modified and compressed, but fully recognizable, and we drive to the final cadence. We'll hear the opening of the movement and a little bit into the second section. Concerto No. 6 in B-flat major is generally assumed to be the earliest concerto in the set, although scholars debate just how early that early is. The instrumentation seems at first glance to be a little odd. Two violas, two viola da gambas, or bass files, speculation has suggested that one of the two gamba parts might well have been designed for the prince to play. A cello, a violoni, or double bass, and continuo. It's nothing that wouldn't have been available at the court of Kirtan, where we assume Bach was employed at the time, but still it seems surprising that he would have chosen as the sonority for the lead solo instruments the somewhat dusky violas rather than the more brilliant violins. In lending featured status to violas, usually considered somewhat subservient in the pecking order for the period, at least one commentator has suggested that Bach was indulging in social commentary. It's possible, of course. We know that Bach liked to tweak authority figures now and then, but it's also possible that he saw the unique combination of instruments simply as a novel and therefore interesting sonority and a challenge to its craftsmanship. We'll take a look first at the opening movement in B-flat major in all brev or cut time. It's not marked allegro, there's no tempo marking in the score, but the movement is usually taken at or about the traditional allegro tempo. 
The opening ritonello naturally begins with a full texture, everybody on board, although the viola da gambas, cello, and continuo parts are simply repeating throbbing eighth notes on the tonic for quite a while. The theme begins with very close canonic invitation at the unison between the two violas, the lead instruments for this movement, with the second viola right on the heels of the first. And it's remarkably persistent with only slight modifications for harmonic purposes for the first 16 bars. The most distinctive attribute of this theme is the initial lower neighbor figure, we've seen a few of those already, starting on the tonic note B-flat in the first viola. This particular lower neighbor figure features two sixteenths and an eighth note with the eighth note tied over across the beat to a sixteenth note before it plunges down to tonic triad. This tied note results in a clever little syncopation effect, although it's pretty subtle because the unexpected on-the-beat gap in the first viola part is filled in by the second viola in close imitation, so the syncopation is fairly demure. That figure, the subtle syncopation plus the descending arpeggio, is heard first starting on the tonic B-flat and, and then two beats later down the fifth on dominant. All of that takes place in the first measure. The syncopated idea is carried on in the second and in fact becomes more persistent as both violas bounce up and down within the tonic triad. Here's what it sounds like in a simplified version. We're used to an active bass line, and in fact an active and rapid harmonic rhythm in most of Bach's music, but due to the harmonically stable nature of the theme and its almost immediate imitation, the tonic chord and the tonic note in the bass is reiterated for four whole measures before finally yielding to the subdominant, which you could hear right at the end of my example. But I don't think most listeners will hear this as monotonous because the effect of the subtle syncopations bubbling up within a mostly homogeneous middle-range texture is really quite mesmerizing. After 12 bars, the ritornello section cadences on B-flat, and we get our first solo section. Typically for Bach, we hear a new motive at this point, but also typically for Bach, it's not really very new. This new motive is actually introduced in the cello, but it's primarily the two solo instruments, the two violas, that do the most to develop it. What's new about this motive is its rhythmic identity. Everything is securely on the beat, no subtle syncopations here. What is not new about the motive is the familiar lower neighbor figure it employs, as well as its tendency to work its way down the rather static harmony in a series of arpeggios. So, how does this strike the ear, this new and yet not new motive? I think most listeners accept it as mostly new and novel. Why? Because that small rhythmic shift, the fact that the lower neighbor figure now begins on the weak part of the beat, the metric position where we're most used to hearing that sort of motive, makes all the difference in the world. Here's an example of it. We'll hear first the cello introduce the motive, then we'll hear the first viola take it over and spin it into a series of chordal arpeggios. And by the way, we'll also hear the new motive being imitated half a bar later by the first viola da gamba, and more seriously, a full measure later by the second viola. This initial solo section is pretty brief, only eight bars long, and they go by quickly. 
but before it's done, it manages to modulate to F major for a second presentation of the ritonello. It's abbreviated, but clearly recognizable. The subtle syncopations are all present and accounted for, although the transposition down a fourth, in keeping with the new key, certainly gives those motifs a different timbral quality. But after just four bars, the ritornello is bumped out of the way, and the next solo section is upon us. It has many of the same ingredients as the first, but it's more than twice as long at 17 bars. And with the first viola asserting its dominance with a series of extended descending flourishes as the music makes its way towards C minor. From this point on, we get more or less predictable alternations of ritornellos in various keys and solo sections. The basic components remain the same. The bubbling syncopations and closed canonic invitations are always present in the ritornellos, for example, but there are always subtle changes in the distribution of instruments and motives and the new keys, which means, of course, the new ranges and therefore contrasting timbres in which familiar motives appear tend to cast each reoccurrence in a new light. A good example of this is one of the solo sections that begins in G minor, but soon wanders away, at least the two solo violas do, from the characteristic solo motives I played earlier to rely on streams of undulating sixteenth notes. What is unique about this particular solo section is the way in which much of the bottom of the texture, including the continuo part, drops out, leaving the two solo violas accompanied by only the cello part, which echoes the undulating sixteenths, but also brings back the lower neighbor figure that plays such an important part in the first solo section, just so we don't forget what the movement is really all about. That particular passage, reduced to just three instrumental voices, doesn't last very long, but it does come back a bit later at a very important time, right before the final ritornello, and that temporary but rather extreme contrast in texture sets us up perfectly for the return of the full orchestra as it gives us the last rousing rendition of the ritornello to close out the movement. We'll hear the opening ritornello and into the first solo section. The slow movement of Brandberg No. 6, marked Adagio Ma Non Tanto, in 3-2 meter, is a gorgeous one, very contemplative, and almost like a trio sonata in texture, meaning two main melodic lines interweaving above a continual part, the bass part likely doubled by a cello. 
The key difference is that, whereas both viola da gamba parts set out this movement, the cello does not, and it does not merely duplicate the continual bass line, which usually moves in fairly slow-moving half notes, but rather provides a more active counterpoint to it, moving in quarters and filling in the implied harmony with passing tones. Another slightly unusual touch is the opening key. The key signature of two flats suggests that the movement will be in G minor, the relative minor of B-flat major. That would be no surprise at all. But in fact, the movement clearly opens in E-flat major, the subdominant of B-flat. But it doesn't really turn out to be that much of a surprise, since Bach modulates freely and expressively throughout the movement before closing on the dominant in G minor, thereby justifying its original key signature. I said the movement was a gorgeous one, and it is, from the opening melody to the lovely counter-melodies that weave around it. The main theme, played initially by the second viola, begins slowly on the second beat of the measure, initially moving upward but soon falling a seventh, an emotional sounding interval in any context, and doubly so here because it falls to the leading tone in the key embellished by a trill. This effect is even more striking because this trilled leading tone is followed by a deceptive cadence on C minor rather than the nice secure little cadence on the tonic of E flat that we might expect. After that opening gesture, the melody begins to move faster with quarter notes and eighth notes as it moves from E flat major to B flat major and the entrance of the first viola. We'll hear first the theme played by the second viola soloist against the continual bass and the more decorative solo cello part embellishing it in the same range. Then the first viola enters with a theme of fifth higher as the second viola continues against it with a beautiful counter melody which creates some voluptuous suspensions. The theme and its imitation, sometimes with the viola parts reversed and with the counter melody present from the beginning, enters four more times in various keys before the cello and continual bass part finally have their turn with the theme. They present the theme three times, the first two bars only for the first couple of times, but eventually the entire theme in G minor, while against it the two solo violas weave an extraordinary counterpoint based loosely on the original counter melody and bars three and four of the theme. Then the theme is brought back once again in the first viola in G minor, embellished again by the second viola's sensuous counter-melody. In the closing measures, the original theme trails off demurely, 
and after some almost cadenza-like commentary from the solo cello, the two violas join in wending their way gently to the final cadence, which, as I indicated earlier, is on the dominant of G minor. The finale for Brandenburg No. 6 is one of Bach's irrepressible jig-like movements in 12-8 time and back in the key of B-flat major. The ritornello opens with a wildly infectious melody that begins as so many great Bach melodies begin, with a simple repeated figure featuring lower neighbor figures and ascending arpeggios, familiar ingredients to be sure, over a descending bass line. We'll call it Ritornello 1. The second distinctive motive is upon us already by measure three, a cleverly syncopated figure employing eighth notes tied over the bar, articulating a series of triadic leaps over a fast-moving harmonic progression. This syncopated figure, which we'll call Ritornello II, may well remind the listener of the more subtle syncopations of the first movement of this concerto, but the harmonic underpinnings here are a lot more energetic. These syncopations occur through the next several measures, lasting in fact until the end of the first ritornello section in measure 8, although my example doesn't take us quite that far. The next important motive marks the beginning of the first solo section. It's characterized by a surge of rhythmic activity, 16th notes to be exact, traded off between the two solo violas. At first glance, it may seem like a totally new idea, but on closer examination, it's really just a much busier variant of the opening two bars that are ritonello. Even though the texture has been reduced substantially, the two violas accompanied only by the solo cello. By the third bar of this solo section, Viola 1 replicates the opening syncopation pattern, what we refer to as Ritornello 2, while the second viola is sequentially developing patterns of undulating 16th notes. As the movement proceeds, we hear more or less what we've become accustomed to hearing, a series of ritornellos, some of them quite brief, others more or less full scale, alternating with solo sections of varying length. While it's true that the solo sections mostly feature motives that we've already enumerated, that doesn't mean they are in any way interchangeable. Some introduce largely new ideas in consort with the older motives, and one particularly distinctive solo section in G minor, cello and continual bass, lay down a pedal on D, articulating it with repeated octave leaps, while the violas launch virtuoso arpeggio-based patterns of the sort we've seen frequently from the solo violins in other Bach concertos. In the final solo section, the solo cello parts release a torrent of 16th notes that rivals and even surpasses similar efforts by the solo violas. Taken as a whole, it's a great movement, the main theme is simple but highly infectious, and the solo sections abound with energy. We'll hear the opening of the movement.
The last concerto we're going to look at for this episode is Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 1 in F Major. This is an extremely colorful work featuring two horns, both of which play a very important role, three oboes, also given independent thematic material, a bassoon, a violino piccolo, tuned a minor third higher than the standard violin, and more brilliant sounding in the higher range, two violins, viola, cello, and continuo with a violoni or double bass. This is one of the Brandenburgs that existed in a previous version, a version that lacks the violino piccolo, the current third movement, and the polonaise section of the fourth, which was inserted into the minuet for this version. And the previous version of this work was labeled as a sinfonia, and was probably used as an introduction to a vocal work, most likely a cantata, perhaps number 208, the Hunt Cantata. And if Bach originally conceived the concerto, at least the first movement, as a sinfonia rather than a typical concerto, that might help explain the lack of clear distinctions between tutti and solo sections we encounter here. On the other hand, Bach demonstrates in several other concerto movements the degree to which he is perfectly content with blurring those traditional distinctions, so this is not an isolated case. The opening movement in Alibrev time, with no tempo indication but generally played as allegro, begins with the richest ritonala we've heard yet, in terms of complexity of texture, variety of melodic ideas, and rhythmic drive. We'll hear first the first violin's theme played without the accompanying harmony parts from the other strings. The melody begins with an ascending tonic triad and, when it arrives at the upper octave, heads in the opposite direction and begins a descent, which ends in a long stream of undulating sixteenths that eventually, over the next four bars, reach up even higher. We'll call this Ritornello A, and here it is in a simplified version. It's certainly an attractive theme, but by no means is it the only idea present. The oboes offer a busier motive, heavily dependent on repeated lower neighbor figures, harmonized in three parts, before joining in with the violin's 16th note scale passages. We'll call this Ritornello B. And starting in bar two, perhaps the most striking motive of all is introduced. Repeated eighth note triplets, first heard in the second horn, and then echoed on a higher pitch level by the first horn. We'll call this Ritornello C. We'll listen now to the opening of an actual performance so that you can hear how all of these ideas plug in together. You may have noticed that in this particular performance by Musica Amphion, conductor Dub Pierter Jan Belder, the horn parts are particularly prominent, whereas in some performances they're more buried in the general busyness of the texture. I think it's perfectly reasonable to highlight them in this manner, since the rhythmic device is such an important one and meant to be ear-catching, but not all conductors or ensembles agree. 
The opening word tonello cadence is on dominant after just five bars, and something like a solo section appears. I say something like because, as mentioned earlier, the distinctions between the 2D or piano sections that house the ritornello theme and the solo sections that highlight the various soloists are not always clear. In this case, in measure six, the texture does thin briefly, and a new motivic idea is introduced in the oboes, picked up immediately as you might expect by the strings. The first half of this motive is unremarkable enough. It's three eighth notes ascending by step. The second half is more distinctive. After the three eighth notes have reached their goal, we get a quick upper neighbor figure followed by a rapid descent back down the scale in sixteenths. Here's a somewhat simplified example. Although my example was simplified, there's still a lot going on. You may have noticed that the bassoon, which frequently acts as the bass line for the three oboes, actually anticipates the second half of the motive before the oboes even state it for the first time. And yet, although there's a new motive being bandied about pretty aggressively in this section, we never completely lose sight of at least some of the motives we just singled out from the opening ritonello, especially ritonello B, which you heard right at the tail end of my example, and ritonello C. And as far as which solo instruments are featured, we actually see all of the different groups, horns, oboes, and violins, each taking a turn, which is something we've also observed in the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 3 and elsewhere. Eight bars later, we're back in F major in another ritornello of sorts, with the oboes taking on the role formerly occupied by the violins and the horns, becoming enamored of ritornello mode of B, originally associated with the oboes. Then, after just five bars, the solo mode of one played a minute ago takes center stage again as the texture thins out once more, and we modulate around a bit all the way through E flat major to B flat major before ending up somewhat surprisingly in D minor. Here we get another sort of ritornello, which of course sounds rather different in a minor key, and for which the horn triplets have been replaced by 16th note patterns. After another solo section in which the mode of ritornello B is particularly prominent, and we modulate still more widely by means of some very dramatic harmonic devices, we land on C major, and a statement of the original ritornello theme minus the horn triplets. But this too modulates quickly, and we head to A minor for another solo section in which horns, oboes, and violins are all featured. As this section draws to an end, there are some very effective suspended dissonances played by the two horns before we finally head back to F major for the final statement of the ritornello and very close to its original form. A bit of the solo section intrudes, but it's held at bay, and we drive to the final cadence with horn triplets flashing boldly. As usual, a blow-by-blow -blow description like this really makes the movement seem more complicated than it really is. In the end, what really matters is that Bach has managed to take a series of motives which, although not always remarkable or unique in and of themselves, are presented and represented in ways that make them appear to be inexhaustibly expressive. We'll hear the opening of the movement and a little bit past the first solo section. Thank you. 
The slow movement in 3-4 time and marked adagio is dominated by a particularly passionate melody. Here's a simplified example. The melody itself is obviously very ornate and melismatic but much of its emotional energy comes from the harmonies beneath it. Though the key for the movement is D minor, the relative minor of F major, the movement starts not on the tonic chord of D minor, but on the dominant chord, with the melody quickly introducing the seventh of that chord into the equation. The dominant chord in and of itself is a restless chord, since it innately wants to seek resolution to tonic. When the dissonant seventh is added to it, the urgency becomes even greater. Then, in measure 3, the tension is escalated significantly when Bach introduces a new chromatic chord, a chord which is actually the leading tone of the dominant chord, that is, a diminished seventh chord built right below the dominant chord. It's a somewhat surprising turn of events, but what adds considerably more drama is the fact that the lowest voices, the cello, bassoon, and continual bass part, stubbornly repeat the note A, the dominant, against this diminished seventh chord, creating a pretty formidable dissonance. This particular harmonic device is one of Bach's favorites for producing tension, and it's especially effective here. After the oboe presents the main theme, the violino piccolo enters the discussion, and from that point to the end of the movement, we hear an exquisite duet between, between first oboe and the violino piccolo as Bach modulates through various keys, sometimes in surprising ways. It's one of Bach's most impressive slow movements, sustaining the emotional intensity from the beginning to the final cadence on the dominant of D minor. We'll hear the opening of the movement. The third movement, Allegro, in 3-8 time and in F major once again, is as jaunty as the second was emotional. It immediately introduces a simple but winning little motive in the first horn that begins by playing with the first three notes of the F major scale and then shifts the same pattern up the scale twice before cadencing on dominant. This playful little motive, which we'll call 1A, is answered by the first oboe, violino piccolo, and the first violin, with others in harmonic support with an equally guileless but catchy little motive that works its way up the tonic triad by means of skips and lower neighbor figures. We'll call that motive 1B. Here's a simplified example with motive 1A on top, played by the first horn, and motive 1B, played by the first oboe.
These two motives occupy the first four bars of the movement and are followed immediately by a new idea, again simple but telling, consisting of an undulating, descending line in sixteenths, which features right in the middle a descending octave drop, after which the line works its way up again. This new figure, heard in the first oboe and upper strings, is repeated sequentially, outlining a descending pattern, which is echoed in the descending bass line that accompanies it, in clear contrast to the prevailing upward motion of the first four bars. Here is a simplified version of this new motive, which we'll call Motive 2. You probably noticed that right at the end of my example, the first horn popped in with the already very familiar Motive 1. So, a lot has happened in just seven bars, but much of what happens after this is based, one way or another, on these ideas. In the first bona fide solo section, the violino piccolo takes center stage, accompanied initially by only cello and continual bass, and proudly proclaims motive 1B heard earlier. But its moment of isolation is brief. After just four bars, the rest of the orchestra joins in, with motive 1A blazing away in the horns. The violino piccolo and first horn share the next little solo episode, and it's no longer than the first, although largely preoccupied with the same idea. A little later, the first violin gets its chance and regales us with motive two. The first really new idea comes along with the violino piccolo's solo flurry in the next solo episode. It's soon joined by the solo oboe, and the two of them engage in a duo virtuoso competition, only occasionally making references back to our earlier motives as Bach modulates freely. But eventually the horns and everyone else joins in, and we're back on familiar footing with motives 1A and 1B heard everywhere. After a new solo passage from the violino piccolo, we get a surprisingly emotional interruption. A tempo change to adagio, a dramatic fermata, and a little cadenza-like phrase from the solo cello, an echo from the emotional slow movement, perhaps. But it's forgotten quickly as the violino piccolo starts up back in allegro tempo with a familiar motive 1B adorned this time with multiple stops and trills. Soon the horns are back as well with motive 1A and everyone has joined in. The first horn and violino piccolo get one last chance at being featured and the latter uses the opportunity to show off its most elaborate multiple stops. But soon it's full speed ahead with all the familiar motives intact heading for the final cadence. We'll hear the opening of the movement. Movement 4 begins with a rather quaint little minuet, which Bach scholar Malcolm Boyd characterizes as a concession to the prince's taste for French music. The melody for the first section begins with a bit of imitation and some repeated horn figures reminiscent of the first movement. 
The second section more or less duplicates the first in the key of the dominant. The trio section that follows, reduced to only the two oboes and bassoon, delivers a similar melody in D minor, after which we return to the minuet. After the minuet has repeated, we encounter what is really the only unique feature of the movement, a polonaise in F major, labeled palaka in the score, for two violins, viola, and continuo. The continuo bass renders an articulated pedal on the tonic F for the first several measures, giving the conventionally patterned melody a rustic air. We'll hear a simplified version of the first eight bars of the initial 16-bar section. The next 16-bar strain is, melodically, a bit more colorful. It begins by replicating the first eight bars on the dominant, but then proceeds to a more energetic passage where sixteenths and paired thirty-second notes appear to double up the rhythmic activity. We then return to the minuet section, after which a second trio is introduced. This one, still in F major, is in duple meter and even more rustic-sounding, with its dual horns proclaiming hunting calls over the oboes which scamper around merrily below. Then, of course, we return to the minuet for the final time, and the movement comes to a close. Here is the opening in an actual performance. Thank you. 
It's a clever little minuet movement exhibiting a great deal of color and contrast, but the listener may still feel that it's a bit of a letdown after the more dynamic and equally colorful third movement, especially listeners who are accustomed to hearing minuet movements from classical period symphonies and who don't necessarily expect a movement like this to be the final statement in a multi-movement work. Okay, that's it for today. Our next episode will consider the remaining Brandenburg concertos, numbers 2, 4, and 5.